Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3? As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday morning, a couple of weeks ago we came to chapter 3, and as soon as we came to chapter 3, instantly we were introduced to a rather unusual, a somewhat colorful individual named John the Baptist. He makes his appearance in the wilderness of Judea, down by the Jordan, crying out that the Messiah is coming, repent of your sins, prepare your hearts to receive the king. See, every king had a forerunner or a herald that went before him announcing the king's coming. Because you got to get things cleaned up for the, the king is coming. You don't want uh, the king looking at the, the garbage in your front yard and your fences need to be mended and painted and the streets and roads repaired. So um, the forerunner always went before the king announcing the king is coming. We need to prepare ourselves for the coming of the king. Well, John was the forerunner of the king of kings. Not telling people to prepare their houses, but to prepare their hearts. How? By repenting of their sins and getting their lives right with God. Now, as John conducted his ministry in the wilderness, at first I think the religious establishment kind of wrote him off as one of those weirdos and kooks, okay? But as more and more people began to go to John down there in the wilderness, they couldn't ignore John any longer. So they sent a delegation of religious leaders down to the Jordan to find out who this character really was. Now, we read about this in John's Gospel, chapter 1, that they sent a group of people down there and said, All right, John, who are you? Are you the Christ? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Uh, are you the prophet that Moses said was coming? No, I'm not. Well, who are you? So we can go back and tell those who sent us who you are. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet spoke. That was out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. John went on to say, I truly baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me who was preferred before me because he was before me. I'm not worthy to even carry his sandals. And then the very next day, John 129, here comes Jesus to be baptized by John. And John, when he sees him, points to his disciples and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that kind of brings us right up to the point in Matthew's gospel where Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And before we look at that, I want to just say we've entitled this current section that we are in, Jesus Prepares for Ministry. And it really revolves around three primary events. The baptism in the Jordan, the temptation in the wilderness, and the announcement in Nazareth. And we're only on that first one where we started looking last week at Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan. Let's pick it up at verse 13 once again. And Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him, and when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Let me just stop there. We have to be careful not to associate the baptism of John with Christian baptism. They are not the same thing. John primarily came to baptize in connection with Messiah coming and Israel's accepting their Messiah. So really, John's baptism was geared more to the Jew because John was telling the nation of Israel, your Messiah is coming. Prepare yourselves for the coming of Messiah. As Christians, 
We get baptized in water after we receive Jesus Christ into our hearts as Lord and Savior. However, John's baptism preceded the coming of the Messiah. Christian water baptism, as we pointed out last week, does not in any way wash us of our sins, nor is it a prerequisite for salvation. In other words, we don't believe at Calvary that water baptism is essential for salvation. We believe it's a beautiful sign and symbol of what Christ has done inside of us by washing us of our sins when we put our trust in him. But we do not believe it's essential. It's important. I'm not saying you shouldn't be water baptized. And if you haven't been water baptized yet, we will be having a baptism after the first of the year. Please come and be baptized. It's an important thing, but it's not essential. It just simply points to an inward reality, being an outward ritual, that Jesus has washed us of our sins, and now we, we get baptized in water to identify with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And as we pointed out last week, although it's not essential, Jesus made it important. He told his disciples, look, uh, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody, and when you do that and people are converted, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So once again, in the new covenant now, the new covenant, which we're all a part of, you always get saved first, and then we baptize you in water. Now, again, verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. John recognized that Jesus didn't need to be baptized by him. Because John's baptism was the baptism of repentance. You know, repent of your sins, get your heart ready to receive the king. Well, this is the king. It's Jesus. He's perfect. He's sinless. He, he doesn't need to repent for anything. And John knew that. John grew up with Jesus. I don't know how much contact they had, but they were second cousins. And John knew what the angel Gabriel had told Mary, Jesus' mother, about how this child was going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, brought forth miraculously, and would be called the Son of God. So John, no doubt, grown up, kept an eye on Jesus' life. He knew he was special. And I believe John knew he was sinless. And that's why he said, you know, you come to me to be baptized, I need to be baptized by you. But it brings up an important question. Since John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, telling people to get right with God and repent of their sins, and Jesus had no sins, why did Jesus go down to John to be baptized? What was the purpose of it? Well, last week we said the purpose was fourfold. And I'm really not going to be able to get into it this morning. So if you're interested, get the CD from last week. Because we went into this in some detail. But I said last week I wanted to look at both of these baptisms that we see here in this section. First of all, we see water baptism mentioned. And then we see in verse 16 another baptism that happened right after Jesus came up out of the water. The latter part of verse 16 says, And behold, when he came up out of the water, behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting or remaining upon him. This is what the New Testament calls the baptism with or in the Holy Spirit. Now, you say, well, what is the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Well, remember last week we said the word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, just a transliteration of that Greek word. And the word baptizo means to immerse, means to immerse. The question is, into what? 
And that is something that we have to look at the context. As we pointed out last week, when we as Christians read our, our New Testaments and we see the word baptized or baptism, we typically jump to the assumption water is in view there. Sometimes it is, many times it isn't. You have to look at the context. Again, I want to draw your attention to verse 11. Where John said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. As we pointed out in that one verse, three different baptisms are mentioned. First of all, water baptism is mentioned. John said, I truly baptize you with water. But there is one coming after me. He's going to baptize you in one of two ways. If you receive him as your Savior, I'm paraphrasing, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you reject him, he's going to baptize you with fire. What does that mean? In verse 12, he goes on to tell us. That's a baptism of judgment, whereby someday all those who have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are going to be cast into or immersed, baptized into the lake of fire forever, which is hell. But in verse 16, we see both water baptism and the baptism with the Holy Spirit mentioned side by side in the same verse. And again, I want to draw your attention to the latter part of verse 16. Where after Jesus came up from the water, behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him. Now that is the second baptism that we see here. See, Water baptism is something that we engage in after we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So it accompanies salvation. You give your heart to Christ, you're washed of your sins, you're born again, then we take you and we dip you in water somehow, the pool, river, lake, we don't care. You know, we dip you in water, and ideally enough water to dip you in backwards and bring you up so it's, it represents that death and burial and now that resurrection. But water baptism is associated with salvation, right? The baptism with the Holy Spirit is a baptism of power that equips us for service, for service. See, it's extremely important to note that as the Lord Jesus Christ prepared to begin his public ministry, he makes it a point, listen, to walk 60 miles, 60 miles from Galilee all the way down to the lower Jordan River to be baptized by John in the Jordan. To me, that says this was something that was very important to the Lord. I mean, to walk 60 miles, to do anything, you'd have to, it would have to be high in your list of priorities, right? To make you walk all that way. And to me, it was saying, that it was indicating that this was something the Lord Jesus believed to be very important to the launching of his public ministry. In fact, Luke mentions this in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 2. It says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, hold on to that. We'll come back to that at the very end of this message. While he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. Keep that in mind. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. I want you to notice the wording in Luke 3.22 and in Matthew 316. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove, what? Upon him. Let me start this study really by just saying this. And this is familiar ground to many of you. So uh, if you've heard this, please bear with me. There's a lot of new faces 
And this is a very important subject. We should not gloss over it because many of you have already heard this, all right? Let me start off by saying this, that Jesus, in the Gospels and in the beginning part of the book of Acts, before he ascended to the Father, Jesus outlined three levels of relationship that the Holy Spirit can have with a person. They are ascending levels of relationship. In other words, they build one on top of each other. Jesus outlined these levels using three different Greek prepositions. Each one corresponds to one of these various levels. Turn to John chapter 14. Now, of course, the context is this was in the upper room the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, they have uh, had the Passover meal. And Jesus is giving them one final briefing, one final discourse before the cross. He starts out chapter 14 by saying, I'm going away. And where I am going, you cannot follow me, not yet. I will come for you someday. I'll come back to get you. That where I am there, you may be also. And of course, fear gripped their hearts. And so, because he was going away now and they couldn't follow him anymore. And they had gotten used to following Jesus in the three and a half years of his public ministry as they accompanied him everywhere. They ate together, slept together, they worked together. They, uh, they did everything together. But now Jesus is saying, I'm going away and you can't come with me now. I'll come back for you someday, but right now I'm going to be taken from you. But don't worry. Don't let your hearts be afraid. I'm, going to, I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send to you another helper. I have been your helper up until this point. I'm going to return to my Father, and when I do, I'm going to pray the Father, and He's going to send you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will abide with you forever. See, this is going to be something brand new. This is going to be something that has never happened before. See, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon certain individuals for certain works. The Spirit of God came upon Saul, the first king of Israel. He came upon Samson. He came upon David. But see, if that person in the Old Testament began to turn away from God, the Spirit of God was removed. We saw that with King Saul, right? We definitely saw it with Samson. Even David himself, after he sinned with Bathsheba, Pray earnestly, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. But this is going to be something different. Jesus is saying, when I go back to my Father, I'm going to ask the Father to fulfill the promise he gave, to send the Holy Spirit upon you. And the Holy Spirit, once he comes upon you, is never going to be taken from you ever again. He will always be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So picking it up, Jesus goes on to talk more about this New helper. Verse 17, he calls him the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, here in that last statement, we see the first two Greek prepositions. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is with you. That's the Greek preposition para. Someday he will be in you. That's the Greek preposition en, en. Now fast forward to the night of Jesus' resurrection. So the first resurrection Sunday evening. Turn to John 20. The disciples are in the upper room with the doors locked. In Jerusalem, some were hiding out. They've gotten some strange reports that people have seen the Lord Jesus risen. But they all can't confirm that because they haven't all seen him. They're kind of in a, kind of a spirit of disarray. All right, They're afraid, first of all, that 
the Jewish leadership are going to send the Romans to arrest them and crucify them next. So they're really terrified for their lives. They're hiding out, right? We read in verse 19 of John 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. Verse 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is with you. But now, the Holy Spirit has come inside them. In other words, they were now New Testament believers. You say, well, wait a minute. Weren't they already believers? Weren't they already Christians before this? They were not Christians in the technical sense. They were believers in the Old Testament sense. See, they believed who Jesus was. And in that regard, they were saved. Just like David, Daniel, Moses, Isaiah... But to be a New Testament Christian, you have to believe in the resurrection. And up until this point, most of these guys had not yet seen the risen Lord. They had not confirmed he had risen from the dead. Now that they have seen the risen Lord, they are firm believers in the resurrection. And that's when Jesus breathed on them and the Spirit came inside of them. Why? The Spirit of God will only come inside a person who has believed in Jesus, who has believed that he's the Son of God, who died and rose from the dead bodily. When a person receives Christ based on that information, that doctrine, at that instant the Spirit of God comes inside of them. So here we see these men now become officially New Testament Christians. And again, pointing you to Romans 8 verse 9, Paul said that if anybody claims to be a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is not in them, they are not a true Christian. Because every Christian has the Holy Spirit in them. Okay? Don't misunderstand that. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit in them. That's what it means to be a Christian. The Spirit comes in you and you are born of the Spirit. You're born again. So all Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. But listen to me. Not all Christians have the Holy Spirit upon them. This is what is known as the baptism with or in the Holy Spirit. And it's often, often a separate and subsequent work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life apart from salvation. What do I mean? Well, there are some people who get saved and baptized with the Holy Spirit all at the same time. I think of Cornelius and his family in Acts 10. They believed in Jesus, on Jesus and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit instantly, right there. But for many others, they get saved and the Lord does not baptize them with the Holy Spirit for a time after, maybe sometimes years. We're going to see in a moment. I know that there are some who say, wait a minute. See, that's wrong. When you get saved, you get everything the Holy Spirit, you get all of the Spirit at that moment. Well, you get all the Spirit in the sense that, you know, He is in you. You know, you can't take 50% of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying you, you know, slice and dice the Holy Spirit and just take a few, little bit. He is in you fully. But that's not the same experience as him wanting to be upon you in the area of service. And for those believers who say, well, no, no, when you receive Christ, you get everything at that moment. Well, Acts chapter uh, 8, uh, those believers in Samaria were, uh, were saved. And yet Peter and John had to go down there to lay hands on them, and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Go out 25 or 30 years to Acts 19. We see a group of disciples in Ephesus 
that Paul comes across. Uh, he knows their disciples, but as he speaks with them a while, he sees something's not right here. There's something missing. He says, well, what baptism were you baptized with? And they said, with well, the baptism of John. He said, John baptized with water under repentance. But he talked about one who would come after him, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. So Paul witnessed to them. They received Christ. He baptized them in water. And then he laid hands on them, prayed over them, and the baptism with the Holy Spirit came upon them. It's not always simultaneous. Often it's separate and subsequent. But it's always God's will, I believe. Why is the baptism with the Holy Spirit always God's will? Why is it essential for service? Because, folks, it supplies the power necessary for service. I mean, we got all the equipment, all right? I mean, you know, it's like, um, it's like uh, sitting in a very powerful race car with the engine running but the car in neutral. A lot of Christians, their lives are, they're, they're alive in the spirit, they're Christians, and they make a lot of noise. They rub the engine quite a bit, but they're in neutral. They're not going anywhere for the Lord, okay? The baptism with the Holy Spirit puts the car in gear, and man, there you go. So that's why it's important. It's God's way of empowering us to do the work he has called us to do. And this added to the disciples' fear and apprehension. Think about this. Here Jesus Christ, before he ascends to the Father, says to these men, I want you guys to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Put yourself in their sandals for a moment. These were simple Galileans. How in the world were they going to go into all the world and preach Christ in places like Rome, Alexandria, Athens, places of culture and learning and sophistication? These were blue-collar guys, fishermen, farmers. How in the world were they ever going to impact that known world back then for Jesus Christ? No wonder they were terrified. I mean, who was going to listen to a simple Galilean? Well, God knew that, of course. The answer was God was going to endue them with power from on high. He was going to be doing the work through them, through the power of the Spirit. And this is where that third Greek preposition comes into play. We already mentioned it in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself this morning. Let me read you Luke 24, verse 40. We hadn't come to it yet. But this is that third Greek preposition. Remember Jesus said to his disciples, He is with you, the Holy Spirit. He shall be in you. Well, he was in them now because they had seen the risen Lord. And then before Jesus ascended back to his father, he told them in Luke 24, verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. That's that third Greek preposition, epi, epi. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Now, Luke, who wrote, of course, the gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And so he ends the Gospel of Luke with this account and picks it up in Acts chapter 1 to kind of get us going again with what is going on, all right? Turn to Acts chapter 1. And in verse 4, starting in verse 4, Jesus is with his disciples before his ascension, obviously. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. I want you to notice verse 8. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're going to receive, first of all, what? Power. The Greek word is dunamis. We get our word dynamic or dynamite from that Greek word. In other words, you guys are going to, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you're going to receive dynamic power for what purpose? To be witnesses for me. To be in service to me. To fulfill the ministries I am calling you to do. And as you go out then into Jerusalem, Samaria, uh, Judea, Samaria, and, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, the power will be with you to do the work I've called you to do. I'm not expecting you. You guys are fishermen. You're simple Galileans. I don't expect you to have the power to reach the world for me. Only I can do that. But I want to use you and work through you to do it. All right. Jesus then ascends back up into heaven. They do what he says. He went, they went back to Jerusalem in the upper room somewhere in the city, and they began to pray. And they waited about 10 days. We pick the story up in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon, there's that Greek preposition, upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now you have to understand, the Feast of Pentecost is one of three major Jewish feasts of the year, beside Passover in the spring and tabernacles in the fall. This feast took place in late spring, early summer, the Feast of Pentecost. These three main feasts especially drew Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world, and the city of Jerusalem swelled to about two million people, roughly, during these feast times. Well, there were Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples, these men heard this hurricane-like sound. They ran to where it sounded like it was coming from and saw the disciples, who had no doubt descended from the upper room and now had taken to the street. And they heard these guys speaking in other languages. What languages? Well, languages from where each of these pilgrims had come from. And they all heard them speaking in their own dialects, praising God, proclaiming the wonderful works of God. Now, some of them, there's always a few in the crowd, some of them said, ah, oh, these guys are drunk. I don't know how getting drunk causes you to learn a whole new language you've never spoken before. <laughs> well, you know how it goes with some people. And so Peter, wait, hold it, hang on. These men are not drunk as you suppose. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, where God said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your young men will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. I haven't started dreaming dreams yet, so I still consider myself in the young man class. Thank you. And upon my servants and handmaidens will I pour out of my spirit on that day. And so Peter, from that point then, after he gives them a solid scriptural foundation for the experience they were now witnessing, launches into the first spirit-filled sermon of the church age. And he basically lays it on pretty heavy. The gist of it was, you guys killed your own Messiah. The one God sent to you, you took, and with sinful, unlawful hands, you crucified him. And Peter says, look, I know you did it in ignorance, brethren, but you got to make this right. And when Peter said these things, they were cut to the heart, and they said, well, men and brethren, what must we do? And Peter, in verse 38, 
said, Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I don't believe that is a reference to salvation. I believe it's a reference to the fact that once they got saved, they would have the same gift upon them as these disciples were given by God. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. A lot of people say, well, that was only for the first century church, that manifestation of power, that uh, what you, some of you evangelicals call the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That was only for the first century apostolic period. When the first century came to a close, that was it. But what did Peter say about this promise? He said, it's for who? First of all, you. Who else? Well, your children, second generation, to all who are afar off. And then he really broadens it and goes, as many as the Lord our God will call. We have all been called by God. If you're a Christian, you have been called by God. You heard his voice. You repented of your sins. You received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That means that this promise applies to you as well. It's not a first century promise. But why in the world would they need power and we don't? Let's just think about that for one second, okay? Why would they need dynamic power to reach their world for Christ, and we don't? Why would we not need that power? Well, we have the completed scripture. Uh, I'm sorry, that's important, but I've been to a lot of churches that will read the scriptures and preach in the scriptures, and it says, that is a doornail in there. We need power every bit as much today as they needed back then. And the result was when Peter preached this first spirit-filled sermon of the church age, we read that 3,000 men plus women and children, women and young people, I should say, were converted. What, maybe 5, 10, 15,000 people. That's quite a message. One message, 15,000 people added to the kingdom. I mean, that's quite impressive. But I want you to... I want to bring it back now for just a second because, again, it's very important for us to understand. I'm going to take it right back to our founder, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? Who didn't begin his public ministry until he walked 60 miles down to the Jordan, got baptized by John in water, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And then, as we're going to see when we get to that third main point, he goes back to Nazareth, Nazareth and announces, listen, as he started, this is his formal announcement of the beginning of his public ministry. Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is what? Upon me and has anointed me to preach the gospel. Folks, I don't know about you, but I think it's absurd for us to think that we can do anything for God in the way of ministry without the same power that Jesus knew he needed to do the work the Father had given him to do. If Jesus needed this power, certainly we need it, right? See, folks, I believe that this is one of the greatest needs in the church today, and the single greatest reason that the church is so ineffective in the world in its work for God, and why we are basically losing the culture war to the devil, when Jesus clearly promised us that against his church the gates of hell would not prevail. I believe it's because we are trying to do the work of God in our own strength, ingenuity, and intelligence, and not in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, people always point to, well, wait a minute, you're, you're saying the church is ineffective today? Oh, look at all the mega churches. Well, have you talked to people in 
a lot of churches lately. I mean, I think half of them don't even know why they're there. Why are you here? I like the music. I, I don't know. I like to be around other people, you know? Have you repented of your sins? Have you, do you know what it means to be a Christian? Have you denied yourself and taken up your cross to follow Jesus? I mean, what does this mean to you? If you ask people, you'd be shocked at some of the answers you get. I don't care how big a church is, and I'm not putting down big churches, because you find the same thing in small churches. I'm talking about the church, period. There's a lot of people who go to church, and, and a lot of churches that have orchestrated their churches in such a way that they appeal this, to people to, to come for whatever reason they're drawing people in. But I'm not so sure that even though people come to church, they're necessarily coming to Christ. I don't know. I like to think so, but I don't know. A lot of those folks are still living with boyfriends and girlfriends and still cheating on their jobs and still living, uh, you know, very outwardly sinful lives. I, I don't know. I, I wish I could tell you that everybody that goes to church really reflects a change in their life. Now, I know in the last days the Bible said there would come many into the church who would not be true believers but would think they're Christians and talk like Christians but not, would, would not really be born again. So we're living in the last days, and I think it's Satan's attempt is to water down the true church and kind of dim the light a little bit. I personally don't think we're impacting the culture all that much. The culture is getting darker and darker. A lot of churches are waning more and more. More and more people are not going to church anymore at all. And again, I think the primary reason for this, yes, there's a lot of reasons. Lack of holiness, biblical illiteracy among God's people. There's a lot of reasons. But I think one of the main reasons is we are trying. We don't need the Holy Spirit today. We don't need that power. Why? We got our seminaries. We got our Bible colleges. We have our doctorates and our. We train men for this for the for the ministry. Look, that's wonderful. I mean, training people for ministry. Hey, that's important. I'm not putting that down. But these men were never trained for the ministry formally. The disciples I'm talking about. They walk with Jesus. They live with Him. They heard His words. <laughs> And then he empowered them with his spirit to go out and do the work. I'll tell you what. Give me the power of the Holy Spirit above any seminary degree ever. I mean, you know what? Forget the degree. I want the power. You can have a degree in theology and your life be still very, very impotent and fruitless for the kingdom. But you sound good, you know. All those letters after your name, it looks pretty good. It's impressive. I don't think God's impressed, though. Again, you need to understand that the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on earth were not done in his power as the second person of the Trinity. Listen, they were done in the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Peter points this out in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. He says, How that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Yes, the Spirit of God was upon him. And folks, let me just say it again. This is how Jesus did the work of God, and this is how we must do the work of God if we're going to be effective, and that is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said, sometimes a person can be a Christian for years, and even be in ministry, and yet not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'll give you one example, and there's an excellent book on this subject that I just love, and I read it periodically. The title is, They Found the Secret. And I get the gentleman's name a little turned around. It's either V. Raymond Edmund or V. Raymond Edmund. They Found the Secret. If you see the name, it's anything close to that. That's what I'm talking about. 
What this gentleman does is he chronicles the lives of 20 Christians, some men, some women, little four or five page biographies about their life for Christ and how many of them got saved and struggled for years before they were baptized with the Spirit and their ministries really began to take off. He gives one example, and since we're all Chicagoans, basically, he talks about D.L. Moody, who was one of, our, one of the sons of Chicago, right? I took this from the section on Moody. There was more to it than that, but I just wanted to pull out some of the highlights. Let me read it to you. Some of you have heard this, but I see a lot of new faces. This is Moody's own words now. He said, I can myself go back almost 12 years and remember two holy women who used to come to my meetings. It was delightful to see them there. And when I began to preach, I could tell by the expression on their faces they were praying for me. At the close of the Sabbath evening services, they would say to me, We have been praying for you. I said, Why don't you pray for the people? They answered, You need power. I need power, I said to myself. Why, I thought I had power. I had a large Sabbath school and the largest congregation in Chicago. Moody at this time had been in ministry for 15 years. 15 years in ministry at this time. I had a large Sabbath school and the largest congregation in Chicago. There were some conversions at that time, and I was in a sense satisfied, but right along these two godly women kept praying for me. And their earnest talk about the anointing for special service set me thinking. I asked them to come and talk with me, and we got down on our knees. They poured out their hearts that I might receive the anointing of the Holy Ghost, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, right? And there came a great hunger in my soul. I knew not what it was. I began to cry as never before. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer if I could not have this power for service. I kept crying all the time that God would fill me with His Spirit. Well, the author says, then came the great Chicago fire. On the evening of that memorable night in 1871, when one-third of the city was burned to the ground and lay in ashes, and thousands were left homeless, earlier that evening, Moody had preached in Farewell Hall. as a whole story in itself. With the institutions, after the fire, with the institutions which he had founded in ruins, his, building, his buildings were burned to the ground, Moody went east to appeal for funds. But he said, my heart was not in the work of begging. I could not appeal. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Moody said, well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I can't describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. What happened? Well, from what I understand, Moody was walking down Wall Street of all places. Can anything good happen on Wall Street? Well, it did uh, back in Moody's day. And again, he was just couldn't think of anything else. He kept asking God to baptize him with his Holy Spirit. So one day he's walking down Wall Street and the Spirit of God falls on him. And Moody said, it was like I was being drenched in such love and joy, he said, I, I knew a family that had a, a, a upper flat. And I asked them, could I, I spend some time in your flat this afternoon? And Moody said, all that afternoon, he said, the Spirit of God was upon him so heavily. And the joy and the love was so intense. He said, Lord, you're going to have to back off a little bit. You're going to kill me with all this love and joy. If you don't, just back off a little bit. Well, Moody left New York, comes back to Chicago. And here's what he said. I went to preaching again. The sermons were no different. I did not present any new truths, and yet now hundreds were being converted. I would not be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. 
It would be as the dust on the balance scale. The author adds, the sermons were not different, but the servant was. The truths were not new, but now they were pungent and penetrating. A few had been converted before. Now converts came by the hundreds. Let me close. Look, if our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ needed the power of the Holy Spirit to be effective in his ministry, and the apostles like Peter and Paul needed that same empowering to be effective in the ministries God called them to do, or men like D.L. Moody needed that power to be successful in the work God called him to do, then listen, who do we think we are? That we think that we can live the Christian life and be involved in ministry without the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You say, well, you've convinced me. Uh, how, how do I receive this baptism with the Holy Spirit? How do you receive anything from God? You ask in faith. Turn to Luke 11. Last scripture will close. Luke 11. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus' disciples have come to him and asked him to teach them how to pray. And he's kind of wrapping things up starting in verse 9. So I say to you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will that father give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Listen. If you then, as earthly fathers with fallen natures, are basically evil, okay, is what he's saying. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, the, will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And again, folks, he's not talking about giving the Holy Spirit in the sense of salvation. Listen to the context. You earthly fathers, your kids ask you for good things, you give them good things, right? How much more will your heavenly Father give to His kids? See, already saved. The Holy Spirit to those who ask Him, that's the empowering. But here's what you need to know. In the Greek, here's what Jesus is really saying. Ask, please ask, and keep on asking. Seek, please seek, emphatic. Keep on seeking, present tense, keep on seeking. Knock, please knock, keep on knocking. And, of course, then you'll get the answer you find what you're asking for, the door will be open, and so on and so forth. See, I believe in asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit in faith, but I also believe that there needs to be something that God gives you as a sign that he's now given you that blessing. I mean, Moody prayed and he prayed and prayed and finally had an experience. Now, I'm not saying all Christians, when they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, have a kind of experience that Moody had, or, or Charles Finney, he had quite an experience too. And there's many others. But what is this empowering for? It's for what? Service. For us to be what in the world? Witnesses. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. Why did Jesus come into this world? To seek and to save those who are lost. That's why, to me, the greatest evidence that the Spirit of God has baptized you now, is you have a heart like never before to reach people with the gospel. I remember pastor and evangelist Greg Laurie saying years ago that when he prayed to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, now he's saved already, he was a pastor. He said when he prayed to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, 
He said, I didn't have any strange, I didn't have any experience. There wasn't any, you know, I didn't feel tingly, and I didn't, you know, it wasn't all this love and joy poured out, you know. He said, but not, later on that evening, I went to get a taco <laughs> at the jack-in-the-box. And when I pulled up by the clown head, I had this strange desire to witness to the clown head to the person behind the clown's head. See, to me, that's the evidence right there. You want to tell somebody about the Lord. It's not so much about God making you tingle. It's God breaking your heart for the lost. That, to me, is the major evidence of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Why does God delay it? Why doesn't he give everybody that power immediately when they get saved? A couple of simple reasons. One, some people don't want to go any farther with the Lord. How many people you know that say, I'm saved, it's all I care about? Why should God waste his power on people like that? I mean, you don't, you don't put the, the, the keys of a race car in the hands of a five-year-old. That, that's going to cause a lot of damage, okay? A person that's not spiritually mature doesn't want to be spiritually mature, wants to be carnal and live with one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world. Why, why would God pour his power onto them, right? Other people want the power and don't get it. Why? Because they want to build a big ministry, want to have a big name for themselves. God won't bless pride. And sometimes he waits, like in Moody's case and many others, because he waits for us to exhaust all of our own resources, all of our own energy, all of our own brilliant ideas and reaching people with the gospel till we become so broken, so frustrated, so fruitless that we just cry out to him, Lord, kill me. I mean, or, or, or do something. I can't deal with this anymore. I've worked to the point of exhaustion. I see no fruit in my ministry. And God says, okay, now, are you ready to give up and let me now do the work? Oh, Lord, I'm so ready. That's when... It happens. So we have to evaluate where we are with the Lord, okay? Where our hearts are at. Are they right in asking for this? Do I want to go farther with God? Look, the higher God lifts you, the bigger target you become, right? So the enemy will, you know, target you more. But you know what? That is the only life worth living to me. Playing it safe as a Christian? I'm sorry. I can't deal with that. I mean, I want to go forward. I want to be used by God more and more. And hopefully you do too. If you have that heart and it's all about God's glory and not your own glory, you pray fervently, you pray persistently, and you trust God is going to give you that power because he wants you to have it, because he wants you to do the work he's called you to do. As long as we get out of the way and give the death blow to selfish desires and really trust God to do it for his glory, I believe he will do that. We must not try to do the work that God's called us to do without this power. As my pastor used to say, you know what? Baptism with the Holy Spirit, don't leave home without it. <laughs> and one last thing, I believe in one baptism with the Holy Spirit, many fillings. Every day we should be, Moody said, we are leaky vessels. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, which means after you're baptized in the power, stay close to the Lord every day, and he'll keep filling you with that power, keep using you for his glory. May God give us the grace to have that kind of heart. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace. The grace that saved us and the grace that empowers us for the work you've called us to do. Lord, we need this power. Father, we pray that you would baptize those in this room with your spirit who know you but have never really been baptized with that power. Father, we pray that you would baptize those who have never been baptized in your spirit and those who have, we pray that you would give us all a fresh filling of your spirit every day, but give us the grace to draw close to you every day that we might be the recipients of that fresh filling. 
Lord, these are desperate and dark days. The devil is really on the move. Many are in bondage to the devil. We cannot break them free, Lord. I don't care how gifted we are, uh, energetic, uh, ingenious, Lord. We can't do it without the power. Father, give your people power in these last days to storm strongholds, to open prison doors, to set captives free, which can only be accomplished as we preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, give us this power that we might use it for your glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.